Hey, y'all, please take a seat. I'm going to start our time by reading from Matthew chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 12 through 22. You can turn in your Bible, you can pull it up on your phone, or you're welcome. If you're watching at home, you'll see it on the screen. If you're here in person, you'll see it on the screen. But we are really glad you guys are here. My name's John. I serve as pastor at the Springs. I can't wait to jump into it with you. Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 12 down through 22. Now when he, this he is Jesus, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Right here, Matthew, our author of this gospel or biography of Jesus' life, he's now going to quote a reference from Isaiah chapter 9. It's verses 1 and 2. Back in verse 15. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From this time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Verse 18 While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. He said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two brothers, James and the son of Zebedee, John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them immediately. They left the boat, and their father followed him. I'm so excited to jump into this today, guys. Here's what we're seeing. If you've been with us the past few weeks, we've been working our way through the book of Matthew, this biography, this life account of Jesus Christ. It's a book that's written to a Jewish audience to proclaim a truth about him, that he's the Messiah, that he's the savior of the world who came for you and he came for me. But right at the very beginning of this, Jesus, you're going to see him begin to take this extraordinary message to an ordinary group of people, people just like you, just like me. He starts this out by doing something that we, even in our culture, are always drawn to. When ordinary folks do extraordinary things, it's part of the American dream. It's part of the comeback story. Anybody here love the movie Rudy? Yeah, okay. If you're under a certain age, you probably don't get it. Phenomenal movie. Why is that? There's a relatability to it where we can connect, right? I recently saw this, a buddy of mine reminded me of it, going with kind of even a football theme. Anybody here watch College Game Day ever, right? If you don't know what it is, I'll say, okay, wow, that was honestly more of a response than what I thought. Shout out to football idolatry in Texas, right? Oh yeah, that got a response here, right? Well, College Game Day, if you don't know what it is, I don't generally watch it. A buddy of mine, he he told me about this story from it, and it's always stuck with me. Basically, Saturday mornings, sports announcers, they show up to a college football. It's generally the premier game of a Saturday. They argue over who's going to win, and they talk about it. In the background of it, right, there's these announcers on a stage. In the background, though, you have all the students. Students or fans, they can show up. Oftentimes, they hold signs. They do silly things. There was one sign in particular that became famous. One sign in particular that went, as the kids say these days, viral. Now, what this sign advocates for, I'm not advocating, but stay with me. Here, I got a picture of it. Folks at home, you should be able to see it. Folks here, you should be able to see it. If you can't tell from the picture, you've got two sports announcers. 
And in the bottom right-hand corner, you've got a student holding up a sign. The sign says this, bush light supply needs replenished. Now, I know most of y'all have no idea what bush light is, right? What is that? You're not sure. That is a type of terrible tasting light beer. Bush light supply needs replenished. And then it gives a Venmo account. Venmo, you can exchange money online. Stay with me. I get it. It's about alcohol. Keep tracking. And then he gives his name to find him on Venmo, Carson King. This student at this point, Iowa was playing Iowa State, huge in-state rivalry. He shows up, he's at, the game is at Iowa, but he's an Iowa State student, and he holds up this sign. He thought about it in advance. He thought it'd be funny, right? He holds it up within 30 minutes. It's been broadcast on national TV. Within 30 minutes, he had $400. By kickoff, he had 600. He said by about the time of the first quarter, he started to think through, hey, I can't use this money for beer. What, what is an ordinary request? What is an ordinary thing people would do? Hey, hey, let's make a joke, give me money for the beer, and all of a sudden, you start getting a little bit more than what you think. After the game, time goes on. That story, it real quickly got picked up by news national media, all that stuff. Why? Because it started as this funny joke of a college student doing an ordinary thing, which is asking for beer. But he ended up, he had a conversation with his parents. He describes this. You can watch a whole bunch of interviews. He had a conversation with his parents and friends, and he thought to himself, hey guys, I just keep getting money. I have to do something else with this. There's got to be something different I can do with it. Some of y'all, you may know this Iowa, if you go to a football game there, I didn't know this until I heard this story. At the end of the first quarter, they do something amazing. They turn, and there's kind of a, a skyscraper. I, that's, too, that's too tall. It's not that big. There's a children's hospital right beside the football stadium. And at the end of the first quarter, all the players, all the athletes, all the fans, they turn to the children's museum, they celebrate them, and they wave. This is true of the Iowa players as well as the visiting players. It's just become an amazing tradition of Iowa. This ordinary kid who did, let's call it comedic at best, foolish at worst, asking for beer money, he made a public statement where he said, hey, every dollar given to me, I'll give it to the hospital. Everything that comes to me, I'll give to the hospital. He ended up getting over a million dollars. Yeah, for beer. No, 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 it was for kids. <laughs> it was for kids. It was for kids. He took that, though right? Two companies reached out to him, understandably. The first was Bush Light, right? <laughs> right? They reached out and said, hey, however much you get, we'll match it. Venmo, that same company everyone was using, it said, hey, however much you get, we'll match it. Carson King, ordinary kid, at best doing a comedic, if not a foolish thing, he did an extraordinary act. He turned something where he could have made it about him. Like what college student in that moment wouldn't have said, hey, that's it, I'm gonna travel the world, I'm gonna take some time off, I'm gonna buy a whole bunch of beer and I'm gonna use this, I'm gonna make it about me. That's ordinary, that's what people do. That's what folks do all the time. How do I take something and make it about me? And he like totally pivoted. He did something extraordinary with it. Let me show you the next photo. The next photo is the moment at the end of that first quarter where they come and they look up at the kids in the hospital and they wave and they celebrate. Carson King got to go and deliver the $3 million check to the hospital. He supposedly says he bought himself one case of beer. Now I know for many, that's one too many, right? 
but that's still 2.99999 something million. That is extraordinary. There's something that even the reason that story went national, the reason that story went viral, is because it connects with you, it connects with me. There's even like this American dream to it where we love seeing ordinary folks do extraordinary things. The reason I start with a silly story about football is because I think that speaks to a principle that's true in your heart and it's true in mine. We are drawn to moments where ordinary can become extraordinary. We're drawn to people. It's why one of the greatest stories about Michael Jordan ever told was that he didn't make the sophomore basketball team. Right? It's why one of those moments where one of the greatest Disney movies ever made was Miracle about the hockey team of amateurs that take on the... If you have not seen that, you got to go watch that this afternoon. They take on the Russians. Like at the end of it, you're like, I live in Texas and it is always hot, but I am buying ice skates. I am all in. Because we connect with this sense of like ordinary becoming extraordinary. As we continue our way through the book of Matthew, today I'm really excited to talk about how this principle applies to your faith and it applies to mine. How Jesus calls the ordinary, you and me, to the extraordinary. How Jesus, and I'm, I'm literally, I am talking about you as a person, you and your ordinariness, your supreme ordinariness. Even if you think you're extraordinary, you're not, right? But you, just as you are, he calls you to something beyond you. It's what tugs at your heart for being more. Jesus calls the ordinary to the extraordinary. He does it first with a message. It's a message that changes eternities. And then after that, he does it with a mission. I think this matters because Christians, honestly, like if you're here and you believe in Jesus or you have a faith, we don't really tend to think this way. I don't know if it's like a broken form of like some strange, twisted form of like Christian humility where where we think like, no, 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 woe is me. God doesn't want to use me. Biblically, that is completely untrue. One of my favorite passages, 2 Chronicles 16.9, it talks about God's heart to use followers of him, where he says, hey, he goes to and fro, searching throughout the earth for those whose hearts that are fully his, that he might strongly support them. But we, when was the last time, Christian, I'm talking to believers now, that you honestly had a moment of reflection where you said with sincerity, hey, God, I know you want to do something amazing today. I know you want to change somebody's life. I know you want to engage. I know you want to see marriages be different. I know you want to see people change the way they date. Folks, come to salvation. My neighbor, to come to a place of peace. To folks, to walk away from an addiction. I know you want to see all of that. Use me. Maybe it's you think it'll make it about you. No, no, no. See, the faithful, when they ask to be used by God, they know they're just a gracious tool in a father's hand. They don't get the credit. But we don't really even tend to think like that. Some of us, even if you're a believer, you might think, no, no, no. God doesn't want to use me. And I I call this the not enough syndrome, right? For, For whatever reason, you're not faithful enough, disciplined enough, educated enough, informed enough, equipped enough, whatever enough. Here's what I would tell you. There very well may be things that God wants to work on in your life. That's true of every Christian. But there is never a point in your life where you finally reach enough to where you are good enough to be used by God. He'll take you just as you are. What is he looking for? 
those who are willing. Jesus calls the ordinary to the extraordinary. We'll be in Matthew chapter 4, as I read at the top. We're going to look at verses 12 through 22 to see this principle pulled out of the passage. It's again, it's as Jesus is launching into this public ministry. He's arguably about now about 30 years old. He's lived. There's been moments where he has proclaimed his Messiahship, but now it's going to switch. He's going public for the next three years, telling the world, calling them to repentance. And he's going to call the ordinary, folks you, folks like me, to the extraordinary. He starts it, though, with the extraordinary message. Where it's going to go, though, is how those who grasp that message, it becomes the extraordinary mission. If you want to turn to Matthew 4 again, last week, if you were with us, we talked about the temptation and the trial of Jesus. It's the moment where Jesus goes out into the wilderness, into the desolate place with the devil, and there's three moments of trial and temptation. It highlights this truth, how you and I, we are imperfect, and even though we give way to sin, there's a king that's come that does not. Right before, he's going to give this message of how he comes to bring light to darkness. He addresses the fact that there's darkness in you. There's darkness in me. And while we cannot overcome it, he can. And then this week, it sets it up to where, okay, he's gone. He's dealt with the private reality of the preparation for ministry. And now he's going public with this. So I'm going to read again. We're going to start the first theme at 12 through 17. And then we're going to talk about it. I'm reading again Matthew 12 through 17. Now when he, that's Jesus, heard that John had been arrested. If you remember from a few weeks ago, Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, has been out in the desert preaching repentance. He is speaking truth to religious power. He is calling out hypocritical faith to sincere faith. And guess what happened? They arrested him for it. Guess what will happen later to his cousin? He will die in a dungeon cell as he loses his head. For what? He preached an extraordinary message. But let's stay where we are today. When he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Those are two tribes of Israel. He's going from Nazareth, right outside of Jerusalem, and he's traveling north into the region of Galilee. So it was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light is dawned. There's beautiful imagery going back from the very beginning of your Bible of the contrast between light and dark. It's one of God's favorite metaphors for how he describes the reality of what he does. And it just connects. That's why every culture outside of it has connected with this aspect of light and darkness. And here it's saying, light has come to darkness. What does that light preach? From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The first thing we're going to understand, y'all, is we look at how Jesus calls the ordinary to the extraordinary. The first thing that we're going to pull out of this is this. It all begins with the extraordinary message. It all begins with the extraordinary message. See, Jesus, he brings an extraordinary message of repentance, of redemption to ordinary people in darkness. Like even before I walk you through the text, some of you, you just know this automatically because of your faith story. 
You all, and if you're a follower of Christ, maybe it was you were five years old at your dad's bedside, or maybe it was 50 years after you had left a wake of destruction in your life. You have a moment where there is a contrast, a season where you saw a change, darkness to light. And at the epicenter of the core of that transition and that change is this freedom call of repentance, not condemnation of who you are but a recognition, sin is real. It has brought pain to me. It has brought pain to others. And I'm guilty for that. God is just. He holds the guilty responsible, but he didn't want to hold me responsible. So who bore the penalty for it? Jesus. Who came and took on darkness that I might be light? Jesus. It's an extraordinary message and is at the heart of faith. So what happens at the beginning of the passage? Jesus, he leaves Nazareth and he's going to journey north into Galilee for three reasons. We'll talk about the region of Galilee in a minute, but here's three reasons why he's doing this. The first one, right? His his comrade in arms, we'll call him his cousin, John the Baptist, his co-missionary, just got arrested. The language in the passage is he withdrew. It's like a tactical retreat. The second reason why is he going north, you might know this, Luke 4 and 5, you can contrast with this section. See, the Gospel of Luke, it's another biography, it's another life of Jesus Christ where it describes what happened. In Luke 4, Jesus had been in Nazareth. Nazareth, that's his hometown. And in his hometown with people who knew him, the folks where he, he grew up down the block from them, he preached a message where he told them, I'm the Messiah, I'm the one foretold. I have come to set you free. Any guesses at how they responded? They tried to kill him. Imagine that. He would have known his neighbors. He would have known the people. But literally, they come together and they talk about it. And they say, hey, he's claiming to demean the Messiah. That's, that's complete blasphemy. Let's kill him. They tried to push him off a cliff. What does he do? It's not his time to die. What will mark Jesus' life of ministry? Him proclaiming truth people trying to kill him. He gets out of that way. What's the third reason he's going there? We'll talk about it with the region, but here's something that's always true about Jesus in your life and in mine. He seeks to bring light to darkness. This moment, it literally reminded me, if you know your Bible, the very beginning, Genesis chapter one, there's this moment where the spirit of God is hovering over the darkness and the deep. And what comes is this moment where God says, let there be light. The Spirit of God always seeks to bring light to darkness. This is true of the sin problem in your life that you refuse to address or you won't tell. This is true of the fact that that the marriage that you're in, it might be shambles. This is true of the fact that you and I, we so quickly choose comfort over being like Christ. We choose security over that moment of fear of, well, well, should I share, should I not? Those aspects of darkness in my life and in yours He's always looking to bring light to. That's just who he is. That's what he does. But why does he go north? Why does he go to these tribes, Zebulun and Naphtali? If you know your Old Testament, and this is a little bit of a history lesson, this is why I love the Bible. Right here, Isaiah, he had written this prophecy to these two tribes. If you know your Old Testament, here's what was true. The nation of Israel was made up of 12 tribes. There's going to be a civil war between them, real serious, right? Civil war, they're going to split. 
There's 10 northern tribes that go to the north. There's two southern tribes that go to the south. Zebulun and Naphtali, they were a part of the northern tribes. In fact, they were the most northern of the tribes. Here's why that matters. They were the first ones to reject God. They were the first ones in the Old Testament as tribes to not only really come and begin to mix Yahweh with other broken forms of pagan idolatry, but to have a hardness of heart that your Old Testament would characterize as spiritual adultery. They were the first to turn from God. It talks about them in 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 7. I'll read this, kind of summarizing why all this occurred. This occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and had feared other gods. What had occurred? God had allowed a foreign army to come in as an act of judgment and conquer them, the Assyrians. Here's what's amazing, though. Who does Jesus Christ go to first? Where does Jesus Christ set out first? The people who turned from him first. The people who walked away from the God of their fathers first. It speaks to this idea, you and I think that we have this tendency, we got to like clean ourselves up to come back to God. We have to clean ourselves up to like get connected. Some of you, the reason you don't walk in faithfulness is you think you have to earn some broken form of like moral authority for you can just walk in faithfulness. And what does God do here? What does Jesus do? He says, no, 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 they turn first, that's where I'm going. They've known darkness. I want to bring the freedom. I want to bring light. I want them to come out of that. I want them to know me. That's an extraordinary act of grace and of kindness. Do you know who those tribes they represent? You. Me. The fact that apart from God, you and I, we kind of like the darkness The fact that you and I, even those of us, some of us here, we believe in Jesus. We like the darkness. And that's where he goes. How does he bring that light? He brings it by preaching a message of repentance. A couple weeks ago, we talked about how repentance is a good word. This word in church, Americans, whatever it might be, it has like a, a bad aftertaste. Like the way that I think about it, even with Christians, is we don't like this word, Right? It's almost one of those things like, you ever get a piece of meat? I'm sure this doesn't happen to y'all. You get a piece of meat, but it's, got, it's way too chewy and you can't chew through it. And so you got to like politely like grab a napkin and like spit it into a napkin because you don't want to make a scene or you want to be polite and you set it aside. I think that's the way a lot of Christians treat repentance. It's not something they're willing to chew through. Where biblically, if you're with us and you can go back and listen to a message, we talked about how it's not just this call of condemnation on you and your sin. Does it address sin? Of course. But it speaks to you. You've got to turn from sin to God. It is an invitation to freedom. It is an invitation to change. The kindest thing that Jesus can say to those trapped in darkness is repent. Turn. Come back. Believe. Trust. It's a hopeful invitation. Guys, this was an extraordinary message. It was an extraordinary message then. It's an extraordinary message now. And why is that? Because what is an ordinary message today? 
Like what's an ordinary message you might tell yourself as you're driving down the road? Ordinary message you might tell yourself with a spouse or a boyfriend or girlfriend or friends or an ordinary message, community group colleagues. Here's what it'd be. You're great. You don't have to worry about that. You don't need to change that. Or, or what about this? I really think you're just, you're just taking this a little too serious. That is ordinary. Or, or, I don't think God cares that much. Or, here's what's ordinary. I don't think you have to really share with them the gospel by telling them. I just think you let them see that throughout the nature of your life over time. God's in charge of that anyways. See, that's ordinary. What is extraordinary? It's extraordinary that God in heaven would leave the throne room and he would come for people in darkness like you and like me. It's an extraordinary message of repentance where you and I would come and we would tell ourselves, we would remind others, we, we would beckon them. He loves you. He died for you. See, it's ordinary to just try to raise morally well-adjusted kids. It is extraordinary to try to press into the souls of little ones. There's a God in heaven who loves you. The world, it's going to try to drag you off course. Trust him. It will lead to pain and scars. He's died for you. He loves you. I want to raise you into a missionary to be sent out into the world. You know what's ordinary? When parents talk about how, how broken of a world we live in and how hard it would be to bring kids into it. Which, by the way, there's some truth in that. I kind of respect it. You know what's extraordinary, though? When Christian parents say it is a broken world. And until he returns, kids, we can raise up, send out, light in the darkness. Because it's so broken, this is why we do it. It's an extraordinary message. But what is he looking to do? He calls ordinary folks. We'll talk about that in a minute. To extraordinary things. Are you extraordinary? He made you so. By faith, he made you so. There's truth in that. But he's the extraordinary one. I love that part of this is starting to take root. Last week, I left a service. I went and I grabbed lunch. A guy in my community group, John Smith, he helps lead worship here. His kids were out of town. My kids were out of town. So we just went and grabbed tacos up the street at Las Fontanas. We had a great time. We sat there. They got great $2 tacos, by the way. It's a total plug for them, right? You can go there. And we were sitting there. And something we, we do all the time the server comes up. She's been extremely kind. She drops the food. It's just us. And we just say, hey, this is me and a friend. We happen to go to church here in town, and we were actually, we were just going to pray for the food. I know it sounds strange, right? But we were wondering if you had anything going on in life, we can just pray for as we do it. I don't know if you have a faith or a belief system, but we'd love to just pray for you. Nice gal there, right? I think at that moment, she's wearing a mask. You can't totally tell. But I think there's like a smile and a sense of sincerity. And she just said, thank you. And then she asked me a question that I absolutely loved. She said, what's the name of this church again? And I looked at her, I was like, I don't think I've told you. And she said, no, 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 people keep coming in here. And people keep asking me to pray and then inviting me to this church. What's the name of the church? And John looks at her and he says, Springs Community Church. And she says, that's it! Hey, I did not have the privilege to totally talk through where she is with faith, where she's at. She may be the most faithful believer on the face of the earth. She may be questioning faith, but she seemed to at least have an interest. But church, here's what I'm telling you. 
That is what we do. That is what Jesus did. Jesus went to the northern region, the ones who turned, and he told them first. And what's he telling them? Repent. This is a message that beckons not only salvation and what changes, but do you know what's true about this message of repentance? It's going to characterize Jesus' entire ministry the whole way through to the believers and the non-believers. I heard this past week language. I'd never heard it before. You guys heard the term of something being on brand, right? That, that's on brand. I'd never heard of it. It was actually an individual that was talking about their own brand. I, I'd known of companies with branding, like who are people we could partner with, what's language we could use, what are activities that we could support. I'd never heard of people having a brand. And this person, who's obviously influential, they talked about their brand. You know what was on brand for Jesus? that oftentimes we try to make off-brand, we don't want to associate it. What was on-brand for Jesus was repentance. A loving call. See, Jesus, we think that you cannot be loving and speak truth. Jesus was perfectly both. Jesus, in his essence, he dripped grace as he preached repentance. Does repentance in your life, does it drip grace? Or do people, even if you're a believer, when they come to talk to you, do they have to like prepare themselves? Do they have to find the perfect way to address it? Like, are your friends scared of you? Is your spouse scared of you? Is your community group scared of you? Are your friends scared of you? Because for you to be challenged, to be called on something else, you just so bristle at it. That's ordinary. He calls by an extraordinary message, you and me, to the extraordinary. But here's what I love. Next part is he's building up this beautiful ministry that he goes to do. Then he's going to transition. He's still going to be in the northern region. And he's going to start calling ordinary folks, just like you, just like me. Because Jesus does something that you and I don't really, um, we don't really equate this with America. Like in America, what would Jesus be doing at this point? He'd be going, he'd be trying to sell out stadiums. He'd be trying to give the biggest sermons. He'd be trying to get the biggest crowds. And he's going to go just get a faithful core of followers. He's going to invest in lives, knowing what's the greatest way to change the world. You find a faithful core. So let's look into it. Let's jump. We're going to look at verses 18 through 22 as we're continuing to look at how Jesus calls the ordinary to the extraordinary. Verse 18, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. He said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. That, that's a familiar verse, a famous verse. Perhaps you've heard that before. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. In the boat was Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. As we look at how Jesus calls the ordinary to the extraordinary. We just talked about how it begins with an extraordinary message. It's the message he's going to stay on brand with throughout the entirety of his life. It is a message that brings freedom to you. The moment, if you don't believe, that leads to faith, or the moment in your belief leads to further faithfulness. It is that extraordinary message, but what does he do from there? He sets you and I up to not just take that message and keep it to ourselves, but to share it with the world. You are a missionary Christian, 
If you live here, you are on mission here. If you're in middle school, you're on mission in your middle school, your job, New Braunfels shirts, wherever you are, you are a missionary. You do not leave to go to a third world country. You just are. May God call you to a third world country? Maybe. But you know what you do wherever you are? You fight to recognize the extraordinary mission. Our second point as we look at how Jesus calls the ordinary to the extraordinary is we see the extraordinary mission. See, God, he calls these ordinary men to be a part of an extraordinary mission. How does Jesus say it here? He gives a metaphor, fishers of men. He starts out, though, by enlisting four guys. He starts out by enlisting four guys. The first ones we see are Peter and Andrew. Peter and Andrew. Now, I got to give you a little more background. This is not their first time seeing Jesus, right? Because when you read the language of immediately, there is a component of, oh my goodness, they just left and walked. Yes, they did that. But they've been able to know Jesus and consider this for some time. We're not going to turn there, but John chapter one talks about their first introduction. It's actually approximately about a year before this engagement, where Jesus even renames Peter Cephas, describes him as the rock. Time goes by, though. Those who perhaps they followed Jesus part-time, this is the moment when they become followers of Jesus full-time. To get a little more clarity, even besides John 1, you could go to Luke chapter 5, where you could see what was the moment where Jesus really gets Peter and Andrew and then James and John to just follow him. Here's what it was. Jesus was in the northern region. He's walking around. What is he doing? He's a teacher. He's a rabbi. He's teaching. He comes along the side, and then a crowd was gathering, and he literally sees Peter and Andrew, and he says to them, hey, guys, can I borrow your boat? They'd been out fishing all night long and had caught nothing. They were exhausted. They were tired, but they knew of Jesus. Jesus gets in their boat. Jesus pushes off to the coast a little bit. Why? It gives him a stage. People perhaps up on a bank are sitting there and listening to him, and what is he teaching them? I am the Messiah. It's the way of salvation. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's what he's teaching. But what does he come for? He's come for those men. Same way one day he came for you, and same way right now, if you don't know him, he's pleading that you would accept him by faith. He looks at them and he says, hey, let's push off from the coast. They go out into deeper waters, and Jesus says, hey, let's fish. They, they look at Jesus, and they say to him, no, no, you don't get it. We fished all night. There's no fish. We're exhausted. We're tired. And, and it's this moment like, hey, trust me. And he tells them, hey, throw your net here. It's a famous story if you know your Bible. They cast their net and all of a sudden they can't pull all the fish. The nets start to break. What happens then? Immediately, they're like, there's something different. Immediately, I gotta follow him. James and John, they were fishing partners. Their dad, Zebedee, was in the boat with them. They were fishing partners with Andrew and Peter. They they were there for this whole scene. And they say, we gotta follow too. But here's the thing. If you were going to change the world, if you were going to start a whole new religion based on salvation by grace through faith, how would you do it? See, fishermen, what was true of them? They were generally poor. They were definitely uneducated. They were not nobility. They had no wealth. They were the opposite of the way we might in America describe the 1%. There was no celebrity influencer that they would try to go get to brand, to magnify a voice. No. Jesus looks for the downtrodden, the look past, the forgotten. And what does he say? Follow me. 
Follow me means they don't even have to have it all together. You'll come to see that throughout their journey with Jesus, faith, it's going to become a revelation to them. They'll come to really grasp it later on. And what does he say? Hey, just follow me. Hey, come spend some time. Hey, come get to know me. Hey, come engage with this. Come follow me. And what do they do? Immediately. That's extraordinary. He's calling them to an extraordinary mission. But here's the thing for them, did it come at a cost? Yes, like the text even doubles down to make sure you and I have clarity for it. It describes them as fishermen. What was it costing them to walk away from? Their livelihood. Like literally how they would eat. What was it costing them? James and John, we know specifically, they just leave their daddy in a boat. Peter, you know this from other texts, he was married. Family, they walk from. What else was it costing them? They had no idea what was going to happen. Imagine if Jesus had called you. I, I, I have a feeling that you and I, we'd have a tendency to do the same thing. We would start rationalizing why that's just not right for us. Hey, this season of life, I don't know if I could be that generous. I'm really trying to save. That way I, I have a, a, a time period of security. And then once I do well enough, I'll be generous enough. That's the way I would rationalize it. Hey, I don't really know like that high standard. Like I'm really hoping that I can take my face seriously. Kind of once I get married, I have some fun. And then once we have kids, right around the start of my 30s, that's when I finally take my face seriously. Then I'll really follow you then. Hey, hey, I, I'm in college now, God. I know, I know, I totally, I left. I kind of want to experience all this stuff that I didn't before. And it seems like there's no real consequence and they're just having way more fun. You'd rationalize. I would rationalize. It's always worth it to follow an extraordinary mission. Every time. Every time. What's the ultimate cost? James, if you don't know this, he's going to be killed in Acts chapter 12 for his faith. It's going to start the great persecution where a whole bunch of Christians will flee Jerusalem. It will cost him his life. John, right? He will come, and John will actually die an ordinary death. He'll write the Gospel of John. He'll write John 1 or 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. He'll write the book of Revelation as he was exiled to the island of Patmos. But he'll get to be returned. He'll, he'll die an ordinary death. Andrew, according to church history, he's crucified in 60 AD. Peter, according to church history, he's crucified upside down in 64 AD. Here's what's true. He's calling them to be fishers of men, and we'll talk about that. But it comes with a cost. You cannot ever act like a sincere, faithful obedience to Jesus Christ won't cost you something. The question is, Christian, this is what you have to wrestle with. Is it worth it? Is it worth it with your finances? Is it worth it with your purity? Is it worth it with your dating life? Is it worth it with how you disciple and invest in your family? Is it worth it with your sexuality? Is it worth it with anything? the one who's calling them that asked them to pay a cost, what cost will he pay? It is always worth it. Why? He's taking ordinary people and he gives you and me this whole new extraordinary purpose. He calls them to be fishers of men. This is the metaphor that Jesus is using. Literally, they were fishermen and he says, hey, what you've done for fish where to cast, how to do it, how to bait it, how to pull in. I, I want to take that and I want to transition that towards souls. 
I want you to be engaged in not just something for you, but something about them. We have to go and reach. This is at the core of every Christian. This is why language we've always used here is every follower of Christ is a missionary. We do not have a missions department. You are the missions department. This is who we are. You are a fisher of men. You are a fisher of women. The question is, the question is, how are we doing? When was the last time you asked, does he want to use me to be a part of leading a neighbor to salvation? How might God use me this coming Thanksgiving to engage with the relative that I've basically just resigned as they are too far gone to consider the things of Jesus? How does he want to use me to literally break generational chains of sin in my family? How does he want to use me? That's where we are, Christian. I've wondered, this is just total biblical imagination. I I love doing this stuff. Peter, he has this moment where he's in the boat. If you know Peter's story, he's going to come and he's going to be in kind of like the, the inner circle of Jesus. He's going to be the one to really establish, especially at the beginning, the leadership of the church. Man, he was one of Jesus' most faithful. And next to Judas, right? Maybe one of his least faithful. He has this up and down journey of faithfulness and betrayal, cutting off the ear and then being scared of a 13-year-old girl all the way to the moment where Jesus dies. He goes back to fishing. He returns to his old job. Jesus has to come, draw him out, pulls him out with a beautiful breakfast, addresses his sin, calls him to something more. And Peter goes and he leaves the beginning of the church, preaches this message of repentance and freedom. Pentecost comes, the Holy Spirit descends. Peter starts leading. They throw him in prison. He gets out of prison. They throw in prison. He gets out of prison. He gets beaten. He goes on in life. He will die for his faith. I don't know if this happened, but I've wondered, do you think if towards the end of his life, you know how folks, they can look back and ask questions. If towards the end of his life, anyone ever asked him, hey, Peter, do you ever wish you hadn't gotten out of the boat? Like, hey, Peter, Do you ever wish you hadn't gotten out of the boat? I don't know. But I think with full integrity, I think he would look at that and he would say, I'm so thankful I got out of that boat and I wish I had given more, done more, served more, told more, suffered more, strengthened more, discipled more, loved more, encouraged more, endured on behalf of others more. I wish I'd taken my sin more seriously. It was worth it. I saw him change lives, lead people in repentance, lead his church, strengthen and establish outposts of missionaries. It was all worth it. He took an ordinary broken fisherman like me, and he did extraordinary things. It was worth it. Church, some of you, you've gotten out of the boat Praise God, that's his grace. But we want to get back in. We want to return. There's this strange sense of ease and comfort to it. He's called you to the extraordinary. We looked at Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 22. We saw how there's this theme, and it's going to mark his entire life. You could give this theme throughout all of it, how Jesus comes And he calls the ordinary, you and me, to the extraordinary. 
The way that always starts, it's with the extraordinary message. It's, it's with this truth that he loves you, that you are a sinner and you're in need of salvation and he died for you. Forgiveness of sins is found by him. You don't earn it, you don't work for it, you believe. So here's the first thing. What must you do if you don't believe that? I plead with you, believe. It's all true. This whole thing is true. One day at the moment of your death, you will enter into an afterlife. He bids you to come home. It's extraordinary grace. What's the second thing that we saw as Jesus calls the ordinary to the extraordinary? It is an extraordinary mission. It's not only the moment he calls us out of the boat, but then he says, no, you gotta go and be fishers of men. You gotta love your neighbor. You gotta serve the community. You gotta go. You gotta give it away. Christians do crazy things like when their family says, no, no, if you believe that, we won't support you, and they still do it. Why? No one else is ever gonna let you down. No one else can fully say they won't leave you nor forsake you. No one else can look at you and perfectly, in full integrity, say, there's nothing that you could ever do that will separate you from me. So what do we do? We live on mission. Some of you, what that looks like is you've got to fight to learn, how do I even share about Jesus? How do we even share this message of repentance? If you don't know how to do that, come and talk to us. We will train you. If you're a member here, one of the things that's true in your community group is you oftentimes, you'll work through three questions. The first question that you'll work through is, hey, what have I done to grow my faith this week? A second question you'll work through is, hey, what have I done at times to feed my flesh? And then the third, what have I done to care for others? Many of our community groups, they skip the third question. You cannot skip the third question. Extraordinary things come when you and I realize our life is not for us, it is for others. We are fishers of men, fishers of women. We are truth tellers in the greatest way. Why? Jesus calls the ordinary to the extraordinary. I want to close with a, a story um, about some members here that I had the chance. It was just a joy. I went to a meeting with the husband. It's my friends Rich and Sarah Hall. I went to the meeting with the husband this past week, and in that we were talking about some areas of faithfulness in his life. And, and to kind of give a little context to it, the story, it really demonstrated to me two things. What the power of repentance can do in an individual life, not just the moment when he became a believer years ago, but the moment from belief how walking in repentance brings extraordinary results. Some of you, you're wondering why you're not changing, and it's because you don't take repentance seriously. He will not bless your sin. And that had been true of Rich. I'd met with him months ago, and he was having a lot of marriage issues. He and his wife, Sarah, they were working through it, and they were faithfully trying to do that. Part of their story within their marriage was past infidelity, and Rich had this growing sense of he wanted fairness. And change should come on his terms in his way because he was wronged, and here's what it looked like, this growing sense of fairness. As we were talking with him, we started talking about what is marriage? What is gospel love? Gospel love is not personified by fairness, but righteousness. You see, you and I, we don't want fairness. We want grace. And that is meant to be the picture of marriage. And so we shared with him, hey, Rich, you can have one or the other. You can have fairness or you can have righteousness, but you can't have both. 
You have to come, and despite the past reality, you have to examine your own sin. Even though you had come by faith and repentance before, you as a follower of Christ, repentance is your job one now. God wants to deal with you. God wants to bring change in you. He sat there. He thought on it. It's a hard thing for any person, including me. I think about a week went by. He called me, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, there had been a moment where he just said, hey, man, I get it. I've made it all about everyone else. The person God wants to deal with is me. It is an extraordinary message to embrace the reality of repentance. That sent Rich down a repentance in his life, even a mission, you could say, of bringing change first to him, then to others. I was talking with him Wednesday, and I asked him, because, man, his marriage had been hurting months before, and I asked him, hey, man, how's it been going? And he looked at me, and he said, hey, John, here's what happened. I, I shared with Sarah the other day that next to one other time in our marriage, I think this is the best that it has ever been. And his wife, Sarah, looked at him and said in response, no, Rich, this is the best it's ever been. I went and I shared that story with Sarah, and even as I was getting their permission to share it before you guys, I was asking her, hey, like, where does that sit with you? And literally, there's a wife who just beams with a sense of joy as she has watched in the repentance of her husband as well as her own life, how God has brought extraordinary beauty to it, how it was not just a one-time thing, is an aspect of life for them. Here's the thing, though, guys. It doesn't just stop there. Literally, as I, as I got permission to share the story, Sarah looked at me, and I was like, hey, would you guys be okay if, if I use your name? Like, I don't want to overdo that. I don't want to stretch that. This is what Christians do. And she said, no, no, you have to use our name. You have to use our name because if anyone is sitting there wondering whether or not repentance brings freedom, whether or not a life of repentance and the mission of it is worth it, if there's any couple that's wrestling with the pain of the past, you have to use our name so they'll come and ask us. You have to use our name so we can tell them. Church, that is who we are. Wherever you're at today, you're ordinary just like me. But regardless of where you are, he loves you. He wants to forgive you. And he calls you to extraordinary beauty. I'm going to pray. And at the end of my prayer, we're going to come back up for one final aspect of song and worship. Through that time, I'm asking you guys to reflect on the truth of what Jesus Christ has done for you. Because after we sing that song, we'll come up. And at that moment, for those of you here who are followers of Jesus Christ, we'll take communion and then we'll get out of here. But let me pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth of it, what it does in our lives, and how you've come to set us free. I thank you for the gift of repentance, what it means to me, what it means to others. God, I thank you that you take the ordinary and you do extraordinary. Lord, we know it's not about us. We know that we are absolutely worth being looked past except by you. You look right at us. You are looking to do the amazing. You are looking to do the wonderful. And God, why not us? Lord, I'm asking that you would do that in the hearts of people today, that they would realize you want to use them. Why not them? God, would you please grow your renown, grow your faithfulness, grow what you intend in my heart and the heart of this body. Would you make us a place where we come and we worship? We thank you for the cross and how guaranteed it for us.